is up, good people. Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints, also known as Holy Shit Pods, a holy irreverence, irreverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. It's me, it's your boy, Brandon T. Maxwell, also known as the host most likely to watch the entire first season of Squid Game in one sitting, and also the host who would play the Squid Game for fun but have a hard time after the first two rounds. I'm Cadrix, and I'm the host who made it through three quarters of one episode. But would you play the game with? Oh, well, y'all know me. I'm Pastor Sam, the host most likely to be betting on those playing Squid Game and hiding behind a gold mask. You're all horses to me. Off to the races. This week, the category is red light, green light, robot girl, real. If you couldn't tell, we are talking about Squid Game. We are going to discuss what's at the bottom of the world's obsession with this show. Now that you know what's on tap, pour a glass and let's get into it. Welcome back to Holy Shit Pod, where three recovering Christian ministers let you see under the clergy robe. I'm not recovering. Spoiler alert. It's just nudity. And I'm not exposing my Christianity to everybody. Oh, Jesus. You also can't say that. That's actually, like, people say that to women all the time. It's, I mean. What? Say what? People say that y'all are naked under there? Yes. This is what men do. This is what men go up to women and ask them, are you wearing anything under that robe? But they ask me, too. Is it because I'm a homosexual? What? Women are out in public in robes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying in church. These are church people. Oh, you're talking about clergy robes. Yes. My mind didn't even go to clergy robes, even though that's what we're talking about. No, this is like on the way out of church. I thought it was something like a bathrobe or something. Jesus. (laughs) I love being naked under my robe. Wait, has someone ever came up to you? Oh, not to me. No. You wait till I see you in a robe with you. Kiss my ass. <laughs> I yeah, try it. <laughs> this is like when Lil Nas X was having the baby and the trans folks was like, you didn't think about trans men who can still have babies. And it's like, I did, but that wasn't my point. I'm saying that I like to be naked under my robe. I'm glad that you do. But you were saying that all of us... But you go. But not the women who are being sexually harassed. You should never, ever go up to a woman and ask her if she is naked under her robe unless she is your wife and it is a secret fantasy y'all have that y'all do on Wednesdays. <laughs> or your husband. I was just about to say. Your gender non-body report. We got to be inclusive. Yeah, some of us are already inclusive on this show. Not the gay black man. <laughs> <laughs> As you are already aware, today we are discussing the new-ish Netflix hit series, Squid Game. We will not have church announcements today because we anticipate the conversation being lively. If you're really craving church announcements, go revisit episode 34. There's a full hour of content to make you laugh again and again. There will be spoilers in this episode, so if you aren't a fan of spoilers, save this episode for a later date after you've had a chance to watch. And if you don't like watching things some might call gratuitously violent, then you should definitely leave America because it's one of the most gratuitously violent countries in the world. But you can also just keep listening to this episode. So in the same spirit of Squid Game, there's no foreplay or lube for today. Let's dive right into the word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks Thanks be to pod. I'm not certain where to start today with this conversation, but I watched all of Squid Game in basically 24 hours. Good Jesus Christ. It took me like two days. Seriously? Yes. It was so good. I'm concerned about you. Why are you concerned about us? She said you. 
<laughs> she did say me. Because she thinks that the the that the show is so violent and gruesome that there's no way you can sit and just watch that the whole time, probably. Am I right, Katie? You are. That's what I was thinking, yes. Like, I couldn't even watch it to get to the point where all these people are dying and being shot and blown up or whatever. Well, that escalated quickly. Sorry. <laughs> Were we not supposed to do that that quickly into the show? I mean, I did say no foreplay, but <laughs> let's rewind just a bit. So I watched the show in one sitting and was completely captivated with it because of the message I think it was trying to convey. I think before we say anything else, we have to name that this is a show about capitalism and the evils that it invites us to perform on its behalf for the sake of being rich, paying off our debts, being number one. You name it. So if you haven't watched it yet, let me give you a little background information. This is a Korean drama or suspense thriller, perhaps, that you'll have to either watch with subtitles or with English overdubs. I've watched once with English overdubs and want to go back to watch it in its original language so I can get the original vocal inflections, but I digress. So in this show, hundreds of Korean humans, all of whom are presumably in major financial debt, agree to play children's games and risk their lives for a cash award to the tune of $45 billion. No big deal. We just finished talking about Big Brother last week. This show is like a fictitious portrayal of Big Brother meets Hunger Games meets WWE meets the Kentucky Derby with humans, not horses. It's capitalism at its finest. Bring us your financially insecure and we'll put them to work killing each other on our behalf. We've all lived that story, right? Yeah, but I think this is why it's number one in 90 different countries, including this one, because so many people could relate. And I thought what was interesting, like early in, I think the first episode, when they're all in this game and they're given the option to end the game if a majority of the players agree to, and they actually end the game by like one vote. I won't, I won't, I'll try not to give spoilers. So what's crazy is they still end back up in the game because Katie, you hadn't gotten to this part, but right before they start the voting to end the game, they said, but wait, let, let's show you what's at stake. And they fill this huge ball with all the money. And here are all these people who all of them at this particular point, now they've seen like, 30 or 40 people get killed in front of them? Half of the people. My bad, my bad. Half the people get killed in front of them. And so they, they're having this, literally they're begging the front men that are controlling the order. You know, um, they're saying, let me go. I've got a family. Let me go, let me go, let me go. And right before they vote, they feel this big, huge ball up with money. And it came down to one vote. Just that quickly. One of the same women who was like, please, I think the very first one who started crying was just kind of like... <sighs> I need to, I need to, I need to stay. I, I need to pay off the, you know, like I gotta, I was, it was, it's crazy. Yeah. I clearly have a different way of watching things than, than you do. Like I read about all the violence afterwards. Um, I had a hard time with just that first, like trying to get the character story for Jihan. Like he steals money from his mom. He goes to the track and, and blows it all, but he's supposed to take care of his kid and, and it's her birthday, and he sort of messes that all up. And so already, I'm like, emotionally, I was like, I can't, like, I do not have the capacity to deal with this in my regular life. And so then I watched it, and he decides to play in the game in order to be with his daughter, but 
Um, they gas them as soon as they get into the vehicle. And I was like, yeah, this isn't this isn't going anywhere good. But here's the thing. I'm genuinely not attempting to be funny when I'm saying this. As you were describing the things that were happening to the main character in the earliest part of the show, you could have very well been describing your own life. Right. I mean, minus the gambling addiction and, like, missing my child's birthday. I don't know your testimony. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, right. I mean, for me, that was... Um, that's too close to a reality that exists. And I think this is probably why you said you are connecting with capitalism because these are people's lives. I mean, this is actually happening in people's lives. I think it's just heavy. I mean, that for me is heavy. And then knowing that there's going to be gratuitous violence, I heard that when you told me about it. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I could do a little violence. This was not a little... I mean, I didn't even make it to the violence. I'm reading about it and... It's it's like the Hunger Games. I never watched the Hunger Games movie because the book was enough to tell me what was going on. This is just how I am. And I want you to be like that. But I think that the reality is we're all responding to a certain portrayal of trauma as a result of living in a capitalist world and society. And our reactions to that are intriguing. For me, I look at it and I'm like, hmm, I can think about 15 parallels of my life with this show in ways that my life is impacted by capitalism that may not be me sitting in the back of a van being gassed so that I don't know where I'm going, but basically sitting in the back of a van being gassed so that I don't know where I'm going. Like, I can think about parallels in my own life and I don't want to make it all about me in the American context because this show really is about how capitalism functions in South Korea. It's about real people's lives. I mean, it's a fictitious portrayal, but it still reflects real people's lives and what they experience as a result of the capitalist economy in South Korea. We even get depictions of migrant workers who end up in South Korea based on a capitalist promise and their lives go to hell in a handbasket. So I'm not trying to make this all about us, the three of us here on this podcast, or us in the American context, because I don't want to overlook the reality that this is about South Korea. Now, there is intersectionality for days. And we'd have to, of course, also talk about the fact that America and Western societies more broadly have been the ripest soil for capitalism to grow. But that has global implications. And this is what we're seeing in Squid Game. So back to the plot proper. We get here because Ji-hun comes across someone who works for Squid Game and he's invited to play, I believe it's called Dot G, but it's like American Pogs. If you, if you ever played Pogs and you throw the coin down to try to flip over the other coin, that's what he's invited to play. But he does that in exchange for allowing this man to slap him in his face. And so he's playing the game round after round after round, and he can't get the card to flip over. He keeps getting slapped. I mean, this man is slapping the shit out of him for like five minutes in the movie. And finally, Jihan is able to get the card to flip over. And he forgets that he's going to get a payout for winning because the man does promise him money if he wins. Well, well, but the interesting part about that was that initially he had forgotten that he was going to get the money. Like, initially, he was going to smack him. Like, the money hadn't... So, it actually took a different turn than what I thought it was because I was like, oh, that's that's fascinating. Like, it, it became about body and, and control because and, and, he had signed his rights away to his body. And he was like, wait, I'm claiming this back, right? He was ready to slap him back. He was like, it's my turn, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then he gave him the money and, and I thought it was going to turn out differently. It... It didn't. But but I thought that was an interesting piece of that first episode is that he wasn't 
He didn't initially say, all right, give me it. But that's how it works. You get enticed into capitalism by saying, hey, give up the rights to your body. And if you're able to play this game by the rules that I set, then I'll pay you. And at some point, the drug becomes so enticing that you forget about the fact that they failed to pay you, that they promised to give you health insurance. I want to sit in the seat of power and administer the same violence that's been administered on me in spite of the financial payout. So the second game that we come across is Red Light, Green Light. If you've ever been a child, <laughs> so everyone listening, you've played Red Light, Green Light, I would assume. So it's this sick, perverted version of Red Light, Green Light, where there's this giant doll who has, like, sensors in her robot eyes, and she shoots you if you move when she calls Red Light. And so she calls Green Light, and people start running, and then she does Red Light, and her head turns, and if you move at all, bow. You're shot dead. So this is the first time that we see, like, true physical killing in the show. I think this is the first time that I see somebody actually, like, being killed in the show. Yeah, I think so. Like, 200 people at that. And the point that I want to make here is that Pogs, Doc G, which, again, I need to figure out how to pronounce correctly, and Red Light, Green Light are all children's games. Mm. And so there's a claim being made here about the ways that we're socializing children in America, mm. not just America, but, but around the world, to have these values embedded in them before they even have the ability to think critically about the games that they're playing. It's as normal as Pogs. Mm. It's as standard as Red Light, Green Light. If you don't win, you die. And this underlying message of nobody's forcing you to play this game. Like when they were all begging, please let me go, you know, why are you doing this to us? And they kept reminding them, doing what to you? Like You signed up for this. Nobody, we didn't kidnap you. We didn't force you. Yeah, that's like gaslighting. I mean, I know. <laughs> but. but did they have a way out? I mean, they don't really have a way out, right? I mean, they, they had the way out. They ended the game the first time. There, there was always a way out. In that sense. Oh, that's what you're talking about when they started. The, yeah. 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 There were rules and clauses, right? So the rules said if the majority of players vote to end the game. To end the game. Uh. So if we have this democratic process by which the majority of the folks voting say they want this person out of office, then we'll do it. Then only then will we do it. Now I understand what you were saying. And they go to great lengths to make sure that you that you know that the 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 watcher. Um, the person watching knows that that they're trying to preserve this process. They don't want to dilute it. And so when when one of the front men, when they're doing stuff like they're they're like taking organs, <laughs> this is crazy. They're they're like from the people who have been killed, right? Because they lost the game. They're taking their bodies and removing their organs while they're still viable, and then basically selling them on the black market so that they can make money, the front men. And when the, like, the leader finds out that this is happening, because what they, what they, in order to do this, to accomplish this, they have to take a doctor who's actually a participant in the game, and they have to bring him in and have him harvest these organs at night and then have him go back to his bed like, so he can be ready. But in exchange for his services, they were saying, We'll give you clues. We'll let you, we'll let you know what the next game is. We'll give you an advantage. So when the leader finds out about this, he says, I, don't care. I didn't care about the organs. It's the fact that you have introduced this unfair advantage into this process. Uh, like, it can, we cannot have that. We can't um, disadvantage certain people and advantage others in this game. And so I thought that was interesting. Like, they, did, they, they actually did their work to try to say, even though this is crazy, like... 
there's a, there's a system in place for this to be to end. Like if if people wanted to. So, so these are people murdering other people, and yet they have quote unquote ethics. Like so, I mean that's just, so which is just like churches, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this is like, but but that's similar, right? To um, corporations and such who attempt to have um, ethics and yet um, are still kicking people out, right? Oh, absolutely, Rick. I wasn't going to make the turn to the church that quickly, but since we're here, yes, this is what we do in churches and also in institutions that support churches. Right. And also in corporations and in nonprofit organizations and our educational institutions. Because within these games, there are a lot of assumptions one of which is a hierarchy. We've got folks on the bottom. I'll call them parishioners for today, but fill it in for your context. These are players in the green jumpsuits who for all intents and purposes are broke and in some form of debt that they're having trouble paying off. They have very little agency or power, but they have all invested in playing this game. Then the next level up, we've got the masked employees in pink jumpsuits. They're getting paid for doing this. And within that level, there's still another sub-hierarchy because there are shapes painted on the faces of each mask that dictate the type of power the person behind the mask has. These folks can't take off their masks. It's forbidden. Hello, somebody. They aren't allowed to be themselves. They aren't allowed to ask questions. They aren't allowed to be here and queer. They're not allowed to be unapologetically black. They aren't permitted to deviate from their script or the role the system requires them to play. You could call them the deacons or the lay leaders, the Sunday school teachers, associate ministers. Hello, somebody. Then there's the next level up. Who's the pastor or the front man, I mean? That person runs the games and ensures everything continues running smoothly. Let's indoctrinate the people to keep them from asking questions and make sure they are so dependent on this system that they will not deviate off of the script or the role that the system requires them to play so that it can continue functioning. There are folks even above the front man. Those are the ones in the show behind the gold mask who come and watch these things unfold. They watch the violence unfold as if it is entertainment. And they bet on who will win it's as if they're at the Kentucky Derby. Their money funds the operation and fuels the interlock system of oppression from which no one seems to be able to break free. These are your trustees, your large tithers, or the organization that funds your social justice ministry with multi-million dollar grants. The money that fuels the way the organization or the system works. Everybody has a vested interest. Right. They're trapped within the system as well, but they don't want to end up being one of the people killed in the game, so they've got to keep doing the work that they've been assigned. Right. And don't just think about it in the sense of this one game. This is the 16th installment of this game in this, in this show. I mean, of course, this is the first season, right? But this is game 16 in the show. Oh, uh, so it drops in at 16. Gotcha. This is game 16. So they have done this for 15. They have funded 15 other games. So just think about the magnitude of money that they are putting toward, as Brandon is saying, I got tired of betting on horses. So we funded 15 games already at already. billions of dollars. Yep. And so just like the Squid Games, the church requires us to ignore the violence, play our roles, to keep the system functioning. 
They require us to wear masks that conceal our true identities. They require us to play by certain rules and blindly trust in whoever is functioning as the leader, the front man, the front woman, the front human. And it provides that front human, the pastor, the president, the leader, the chief executive, with the freedom to do whatever it wants as long as the gangs are maintained and there's no disruption to the so-called natural order. This thing is life. Speaking of life, I think that sounds like a good place to take a quick break, check our temperatures, and then come right on back to talk a little bit more about Squid Game and what it teaches us about capitalism, the church, and our lives. We'll be right back after this. Most of the stuff preachers say don't make sense, but it sounds good. It did sound good when I said it, but I just don't want to be one of those preachers. You are you are one of those preachers. I'm, you, you're the best. I learned from the best. I, I, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I make some shit sound good. I'm humble, too. And I can hoop it, too. <laughs> I, pre- I had to preach Sunday, Brandon. I was I was black. I was the blackest preacher you ever heard. Was you naked under your purple robe? That is, that is harassment. <laughs> <laughs> but were you naked? <laughs> and ashamed. Who told you? <laughs> I was naked in because he'd be on the Instagram trying to show off his body. I could see him trying to be naked under his robe. N E K K I D. Wow. Wow. Welcome back from that quick break. Let's jump right back into it. Overall, that's the sort of idea behind the show. There are other games that they play, but the longer that they play the game, the more violent the games become and the more they're required to now do violence to one another. So they're all being indoctrinated and culturated into this violent culture and learning to accept the violence. So I play one game and you slap the shit out of me for five minutes in a subway station. I play a second game and I'm literally standing next to people who are trying to breathe as they're running toward the finish line of red light, green light. And I'm seeing people die all around me. And then I play a third game and I'm trying to cut out this shape from a hard-ass cookie. And I'm seeing you stand over people who are kneeling down trying to cut this cookie out for their lives and you're shooting them dead. By the time I get to the fourth game, it's tug of war. And this is like the most lethal drastic, deadly tug of war I've ever seen because they're both on these platforms. And if you lose, you fall to your death. The entire team of 10 falls to their death. So they've now forced the players to choose their teams and however effective they are in choosing their teams dictates the success with which they'll be able to navigate this game. And so people are making all these calculations. We can't have any men on this, te- women on this team because women are weaker. Well, that's interesting because then you're going back to, I mean, I just think now that y'all are talking about it, I'm seeing how it played out in in the initial, the first show, right? So you're also tapping into this kind of kid hierarchy right? These games, like picking people to be on a certain team, like the ones who win are great. The ones who lose, like are dead socially, right? It's also encapsulating that kind of culture where, um, like in the kid realm, uh, in grade school, in middle school, in high school, it's just perpetuated. Maybe it comes from capitalism, right? But it's certainly capturing that by using the simplest of games. And even before they got to tug of war, Brandon, there's a scene where um, they're, they're being served dinner and they literally are served an egg and a like a a drink, a bottle of soda, beer, I don't know. And there's there's a few people who, because the food is, the portions are so small, 
they cut back in line and they get like a double portion. And, and, and they did get a double portion, but we, we later find out that, that they actually fed like less food than than the amount of people were there also to, to kind of sow discord among people. But so there's this altercation between uh, two of the participants in the game where this other guy who's kind of like the bully, you know, this 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 antagonistic character in the in the show, he becomes physical and like attacks and beats up the smaller guy who was saying, "You took my food." He was angry and so he beats him up, kicks him, all of this stuff, and the guy dies right there on the floor. Right? And the the main character in the show is screaming cuz the people have walked out and left. This guy literally is getting beat up, kicked. Nobody intervenes. When when the guy finished kicking him and beating him up, the front men leave the room. The doors close behind them, and the 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 main character of the show is screaming, "Hey, get this guy some help! He just killed the man. This man is dead, you know." And all of a sudden, well, there's a sound that it makes when someone is eliminated. All of a sudden, that sound goes off, and more money drops into the ball because more money fills up the ball when players are eliminated. It's liturgical, and so and so in that moment. People say, oh, it's not just losing the game that eliminates people. And so immediately that night, people are like, we know what's going to happen. As soon as the lights go out, people are going to try to kill as many people as they can. And that's exactly what happened that, that night. And so it was just, it was, it was crazy, man. It's, I don't know how Brandon, if Brandon watched this in 24 hours, he's a, he's a uh, sociopath. Absolutely. I mean, but they, so they literally make this thing liturgical. They ritualize all of these activities. So every time someone dies, you get a you get a cue. You get a reward, right? You hear this sound and you see that this giant ball that I think was actually like a giant piggy bank, you see it filling with money. You get baptized in this sea of green over your head. The entire room becomes dark and they light up the piggy bank. And so you see someone else just lost this game slash died in this Piggy Bank is getting more money, and then there's a ticker on the on the wall that outlines the offering for the week. I mean, the, the amount of money that's in the piggy bank. Uh-uh. Oh, yeah. And so you see how much the pot is growing by every time someone dies, that by the time you get to the end of the game, it's like $40 billion with a B, $40 billion in there. Of course you're about to kill this motherfucker. You've, you've come this far. We can talk precisely about the show at length, but I think the point I'm trying to make is, as violent as it is, I think part of the reactions that we have from people, whether those reactions be watching it in one day or not watching it at all past the first episode, is because it actually is mirroring our realities back to us. And for me, investing in it and watching it all in the day was really illuminating for the ways in which I participate in capitalism and the ways that capitalism literally is, is socializing me to do this kind of violence on what I might call smaller scales, but every single time that I go into a store and I buy another shirt or I buy another pair of pants online, every time that I participate in that ritual, in that liturgy, that's coming at a cost. There is a player who's being eliminated as a result of those seemingly simple choices that I make. I'm simply playing red light, green light. I'm simply trying to eat an egg and a Coke because I haven't eaten in three days. So I'm making the choice to eat a second egg because I haven't gotten food. That comes at a cost. And so every single day, each of us is making these choices that does cost somebody their life. And I'm not trying to be heavy and you depressing. Are. I'm just saying this shit mirrors our lives. You are. And I want to see you stop buying them pants and them shirts too because you know some child somewhere is dying. I... 
need to evaluate that in my life. I'm just messing with you. I know you ain't going to stop. You that up in another two decades. You ain't going to stop, right? <laughs> so let's take a harder theological turn. Sam, you highlighted that churches do this on a regular basis as well. And so what, if anything, can we glean from the show theologically, liturgically, ecclesially? Ecclesial just means church, y'all. Add that word to your SAT study notes. Or not. Or don't. You don't have to. These are just words that uh, a part of my vocabulary because I went to seminary. I'm not trying to sound smart. It's just the simplest way to say church is shit. Or I could just say church is shit. I'm not trying to sound smart. I just am smart and it's really hard for me to hide that. And I'm also humble. Not as humble as me. (laughs) I'm the most humble. Mm -hmm. So what can we glean from the show theologically? Theologically. Katie? Well, shit, you can't talk. You ain't even watched the show. No, but what I'm hearing from you all is like, this, um, especially with the money, um, the piggy bank or whatever it is at the top above them, it's like highlighting that individualism of American Christianity, right? And and so there's like no desire to care for other people. You can say it, you can think about it, you can even preach about it. But in the real world, when you walk outside the church, you're only out for yourself. And so like, Theologically, we believe there's some kind of feeling that we have to live what we believe. And in actuality, we do. If if we believe that everything is individual and then we're always seeking out for ourselves, then we're living a gospel, but it might not be the gospel. I'm seeing your faces and it looks like you didn't think that made sense. My face was like that because I sound like I was hearing a buzzing sound and I didn't know if that was something external or internal. Oh, that was my phone. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, the, I'm I'm I'm, re- I'm trying to figure out how to answer your question, and I don't know that I know how to answer it right now. So, like, I'm, what I'm thinking is, when we are baptized into the Christian tradition, we inherit stories, and we inherit stories that are violent. We inherit stories that talk about one group of people being prioritized over another group of people. We were, we inherit stories about brothers killing their brother. Mm-hmm. We learn about Jacob and Esau. And how Jacob's mother loves him more than his, than his older sibling, and she helps him steal his brother's birthright. That's capitalism. That's about money. That's about property. That's about privacy, ownership, and stealing that from someone else at all costs. We inherit these stories that also make us think this shit is normal. Because it's all about what God intended. Jacob is celebrated in the Christian tradition. Jacob was entitled to this because God bestowed that right up on him in spite of what the rules of the society and the culture said. Birthright. Because God wanted Jacob to have the birthright. Mm -hmm. Not even the societal laws and norms could prevent Jacob from getting it. That's the logic that I've heard preached. When really Jacob's mama had a favorite son and she didn't care if her oldest son was harmed or if she broke the customs and the laws of that day in order to make sure that her favorite child got what she wanted him to have. Mm-hmm. We read about violence on the cross and preach that thing every Sunday in black churches. We're taught that this is okay and we should actually do this because the end justifies the means. Somebody thought God wanted it. If I kill 400 Korean people who are all in debt to lenders and creditors who are going to be killed anyway out there on the street, but now I've given them the opportunity to life and life more abundantly through this $40 billion payout, then I can be as violent as I want to be because I'm just I'm not any more or less violent than the people on the street. And they'll realize that and they'll come singing my praises when they do. 
Like, that's what I think we're doing in churches is we're exposing people to violence, normalizing violence, theologizing violence, and asking folks to find a better alternative. You won't, and we know you'll be back. So, Brandon, I know who you are, right? I know you ain't shit. That ain't what I'm trying to say. But I know who you are. I know how you were raised up, if you will. When did you make that turn for yourself? Because I'm sure you grew up listening to and even because you was one of those early preachers. You know, you was a young preacher in church helping with stuff. I'm sure that, that, that there was a way that you read and interpreted scripture that also identified with some of these things. When did you begin to make that turn? In being critical of scripture? Yes. I mean, I think it was literally my undergraduate education. I went to a Christian, a school that called itself Christian is what I should say for undergrad. And I had to take Old Testament and New Testament. And that religion department, contrary to what I think the administration believed about it, was so transformative from my theological formation because it taught me how to think critically. And it taught me how to read the text and utilize these different approaches that we've talked about in previous episodes to not just take it hook, line, and sinker and act as if this doesn't have an impact on me in these other ways, but to read it critically and to say, hmm. I mean, the first thing for me was there are two creation accounts, and those things are different. And if you treat them as separate creation accounts, they contradict one another, and they give you two very different images of what God did in creation. If you read the four Gospels, you get four different stories about what Jesus did and who Jesus was on the earth. And those things actually do, in some ways, parallel one another, but in other ways, they contradict one another. So for me, I made that turn, I believe, in undergrad. And the longer that I continued to read the Bible critically, that was the beginning of it for me. And Katie, for you, was it like Vietnam? Was it when you saw King assassinated? When when did it happen for you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So Katie, what about you? When did when did you make that turn? Or, you know, what was your exposure through childhood? I know you're you're a military kid, right? And so there was a lot of movement and exposure to different things for you. I, I just think your background may be a little bit different than me and Brandon's, not just because you're a white woman and we're black men, but just Context, all, all context. So when did you start thinking, hmm? So I, I don't know what the turn is because I was zoning out. So. <laughs> I hate Katie. Never mind. Let me go on to something else. No, I, I was like, I'm going to keep listening and see if he actually tells me what the turn is. So Brandon was saying, Brandon was talking about all of the violence in scripture and all of this stuff. But the truth is, a lot of people who grew up in Christian homes don't see that. Right. Right. Even the most violent of scriptures, because they've heard it preached in a way or, or interpreted it in a way, like you said, with Esau and Jacob, like, no, God wanted this. This was this was all ordained by God. This is God leading God's people out. And, and they had to do it because God was that's that was God making the way, you know. No, that was murder. Right. You know, <laughs> like right. you. Know, right. like, uh, but but for many of us, there was there's a turn in the way that we hear and read and understand scripture for us to see that. Like, did you have that experience for yourself? I don't know. I think it was when I had to teach stories to kids, right? I mean, I don't, I don't remember an exact moment. Um, you wasn't listening to this shit. I think I would look past the violent and try to look for what was good and happy and connected us together, which is a very white woman thing to do, right? I mean, that's, that, that's what we're taught. I mean, I get, I get it. And so reading those stories to kids and you go, what? Um, 
like what happened to the rest of the animals when um, Noah only brought two of them, two of each on the ark? You kill a lot of animals. And you know why people love animals more than people. They love animals, right? Maybe teach them babies <laughs> about the animals. They're going to have a whole bunch of PETA activists in your children's Sunday school class. Oh, Jesus. But no, Katie, I think that's real talk. Like, like, I wish there were more Sunday school teachers who had that same sort of critical approach to say, when I teach this to children, I'm forming them. When I teach children pogs, right. when I teach children red light, green light, right. a red rover, red rover, whatever the game is, what are the implicit things that I'm teaching them and how can I teach them this in a way or reframe the game in a way that helps to embed some different principles within their souls, their spirits, and their psyches? Sam, did you have a moment where you started reading scripture in, like a little bit more critically and being able to say, this shit is violent? Yeah, it was so it was before I started seminary, but I didn't have like the tools and the language and the understanding to really know what my issue with scripture and with religion was. Like I just I just knew I was sick of it. I was just tired. I think I went a whole year or two toward the end of my undergraduate experience and I did not go to church. I was just like I'm just tired of this. Like, this is crazy. Then I went to seminary, um, which I didn't take any religion classes undergrad because if I had been exposed to it a little earlier, like you, Brandon, I might have made that turn sooner. Um, but my, that exposure happened in seminary when, and I don't even think like seminary was pushing me to necessarily be critical. It wasn't like they were saying, you know, you got to be critical and you got you to question everything about scripture. They was kind of just, they just kind of said, we want to give you the tools to read, to kind of understand and come to your own conclusion about what it is that you're reading and understanding. And when I started doing that, I started saying, damn, there's some violent stuff in these, in these pages, you know? And in some ways, it's life, right? And the more dangerous thing is not the violence, but it's what we do with it. It's how we hear it, how we read it. And then we just say, oh, it must be justified. Oh, you know, because we're, we're Christians, then, you know, this is just God championing God's people. And, you know, I mean, it's just all of, all of these things. It's the interpretation that we <laughs> use once we've read Scripture. And so for me, it's just like, I, I don't know. You know how people say seminary, like, ruins your life? It certainly did not do that for me. Um, but I think people might hear me talk about Scripture and think that it ruined my life because I'm super critical of it. I'm super critical of exalting it to this like divine place, this super authoritative place that must be applied for how we live our lives and how we treat other people. Because I think if, if scripture is the barometer, we all in bad shape. I mean, I think when you just said that, Sam, it made me think about James Baldwin's quote, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Yeah. And for me, that's the same thing with scripture. Yeah. It's the same thing with the church. You love the church? It's the same thing with Jesus. I asked about the church. It's the same thing with God. Let me hear you say it. I love God more than any. Let me hear you say it. I love God more than any. <laughs> anything else in the world and exactly for this reason I um, I insist on the right to criticize them perpetually. Wait, you're saying you love God and because of that you 
reserve the right to criticize the church or you reserve the right to criticize God? I use they, them, their pronouns for God in that instance. I was talking about God with they, them, their pronouns. But I would say the same thing about anything that calls itself of God. If scripture claims to be of God, I insist on being able to criticize scripture perpetually. Yeah. If the church claims to be of God, I insist on. Because, and it's not necessarily a love for the church to your point. You wanted to hear me say it. I know you was playing. But it's a love for God. And it's the fact that churches claim that they also love God and are pointing people to God. And because I love God and I critique God, I'd be damned if I didn't also critique the church. Right. That you love. Right. So, I was... <laughs> I was thinking violence, right? You was thinking violence. But, but as you're As talk- white people always do. <laughs> you child. <laughs> but if the question is more broad and to say, like, when was the turn that you started critiquing scripture, right? Like, period. Not the violent parts or where that is. Then it was really early because my mom started seminary when I was eight and was a fairly radical uh, uh, feminist. And so, like, she would refer to God as they, I think I've said this before, like, she would not refer to God as God because that's already male. And so, I learned about the feminine God very, very early. But but in terms of violence, that probably took a while. But I learned to critique scripture. Of course, I was indeed um, surprised to learn about IE. JEDP. The sources. I did this wrong the last time. JEDP. IEP. Are we talking about sources? Jesus Christ. The sources. I was really surprised to learn about the sources of the Torah. So we've talked a lot about Squid Game and about the ways in which it mirrors our society, not just corporations, not just the tech industry, but also our religious institutions and the ways that we're formed in those spaces. With that in mind, what are invitations for listeners this week? Sam, you get the first word. Real light, green light. I'm just playing. My invitation to listeners this week. First, if you have not done so, go and watch Squid Game. Listen to this entire episode first. You'll be okay if we had a couple of spoilers in there. We didn't tell you who won or anything, so. Jihun. You know, that's fine. Jihun. <laughs> <laughs> But go, but one. But go and watch Squid Games, Katie. You need to go and watch it too. Katie Jihun wins. Um, the question that I ask you guys, I really want people to think about when they made that turn for themselves in terms of being critical. I think think about the quote that Brandon um used from James Baldwin. Right? It, it's um, a lot of people who listen to us love the church or they love the community that they're in or they love, you know, there's something that they love. And so think about what it means to be perpetually critical of that thing because you want it to be better. You want it to be better, not just for yourself, but for um, your, the people around you, for the people who will come after you. Um, and think about what that criticism looks like like you know i think that i think it has to be intentional right and so and so i want you to think think about that put me on the spot i ain't know what to say i mean but so i mean it, that, that takes me back to this whole thing about love being a verb love isn't a sappy feeling i mean if you look at webster's it is technically a strong feeling of affection or concern toward another person but for me in the way that we read about love being used in the christian tradition it's Something that, if it is purely a feeling, it also inspires action. I think about a Toni Morrison interview, I believe it was with Oprah, where she was talking about how when her child came back from school, she had to learn what it meant to express love for her child without a critical eye. Because 
black parents, you know, they come in, why is your hair looking like that? Why ain't your shirt tucked in? Why is your backpack dirty? Why did you mess up your shoes? Why? And you start to look at all these things. And that's coming from a place of wanting to say, like, I sent you to school looking like something because you represent me. But that may not be internalized or interpreted as love. And so she had to learn what it meant to reframe those questions to engage her child, still from a place, still, still perhaps being critical, but also in a manner that fully conveyed the love she had for her child. And so I think for me, if I'm someone who sounds like I hate the church when I'm critiquing the church, that's my language and that's my voice. That's not my goal because I'll say all day, I love the church for the ways that it formed me and I'm hella critical of it. And it still comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of disappointment because I want it to be better. Find your language and find your lane. You don't have to sound like you hate the church. I'm not saying that I do. That just may be how you hear me. That's your business. That ain't mine. But figure out what your language is because if you truly love something or someone, then you'll critique them. Katie, what's your invitation? I'm focused on this this critique because over in the last part of my life, whatever, decade or so, I've realized that critique takes you to something better, right? Like, But there are so many people, and this is what both of you are saying, that if you have commi- people that are committed to the church or an organization or something, the only way to actually make something better is to get different people's opinions. And that, that's going to that's gonna create a situation where there might be critique. That's going to create a situation where there might be tension. But if everybody's committed to the mission, that's a good military term. If everybody's committed to the mission, then everybody's aware that you're headed in the right direction. That's how you can be in a healthy relationship. So my invitation is to commit to the conversation to make things better. That could be your relationship. That could be your church. If you go to one of those, it could be at your work. It could be with your friends. It could be this podcast. It could be this podcast. That's right. You could email us at holyshit <laughs> at theolab.com. Well played. And tell us your critique. Theolabmedia.com. What did I say? Theolab. Oh, yeah, definitely holyshit at theolabmedia.com. People won't know who we are. We won't get your email then. You're right. Engage the process of critique with people with an idea that you're moving towards something better. My invitation is to critique everything in your life equally. Some of us are committed to critiquing the church, God, Christianity. That's a worthwhile task. But if you're critiquing the church, God, and Christianity more than you are critiquing your buying habits and online spending, then you still have an idol in your life. And that idol's not the church. It's Zara, H&M. Banana Republic on the days they have a sale online. And if you aren't just as critical of that as you are of the church, then you still got a God in your life. It just happens to be the mouse that you're clicking to purchase those things. Be just as critical of the games you're teaching your children as you are of the Bible stories they learn in church. Because if you're teaching them how to play pogs, red light, green light, and you're not careful, they're learning something. They're taking on values in those processes. We have to live well-critiqued lives. And the first person that I'm going to critique all the time, I'm going to look inside first. Not to assume that I've done anything wrong or to judge myself, but to evaluate my actions. What were my intentions here? Did those intentions match my values? Did those values match my commitments? Did it match the other things and the vibes I want to put into the world? And I do that to myself first so that I can also do it to others with grace and charity. As much as I'm committed to critique, I'm also committed to grace. 
So it's all about a gracious critique. It's all about a critical grace. And we have to apply that rubric to every single aspect of our lives for the sake of the transformation of the world. Because if we don't, we'll just end up creating other unchecked idols and we'll all end up playing somebody's squid game and getting gassed in the back of a van and getting fucked over by some men with some machine guns and some pink jumpsuits. And I'm not talking about Lil Nas X's music video. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit in the Temple for All Saints and Aints. We appreciate you taking an hour out of each week to hang out with us. Top of page two in HSP 035036 scripts. So now I'm supposed to go? I didn't realize that was your last time. And now that you've been hanging out with us a while, why don't you just dive in and engage with us more intentionally? Join the conversation. Send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We love hearing from you and would love to read your question or comment aloud on a future episode. You can also submit a voicemail by visiting theolabmedia.com and clicking that purple hexagon in the right. In the bottom right. In the bottom right corner. Clicking the purple hexagon in the bottom right corner. Of your screen. Of your screen. I don't know why I can't say hand. I don't know why you can't read. It's it's okay. You're gonna get this. And one more thing: don't forget that God loves a cheerful giver. If you're being blessed by what you're listening to, head on over to Patreon. Okay, you misspelled that. Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media and put a little love, put a little love in the offering basket as it is being passed out. Because God loves what? The cheerful giver. God loves what? A cheerful giver. Okay, y'all ain't gonna y'all ain't sorry, gonna talk sorry, back sorry, to sorry, me sorry. again. I did, I did, I, I said. God loves what? Oh, okay. A, a cheerful, cheerful giver. giver. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good people, that's a wrap. Don't forget to rate and review the pod in Apple Podcasts. We love seeing those stars, all five of them. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Until then, peace. peace.